Thanks for joining us at the St. John's campus of Redeemer Church. We are one church meeting in two locations, living out our mission to connect people with the love and life of Jesus Christ. If you ever have any questions or want to learn more about us as a church, you can always check us out online at myredeemer.church or stay connected with the Redeemer app. With that said, let's go to this week's message. So when I was watching the Goonies with the kids, my oldest boy um, was amazed at the beginning of the movie when the older brother got on the little girl's bike to chase after the kids um, because they had gone so far from home without their parents. And then at the end of the movie, he said, they were gone all night. Where are their parents? The mind of a nine-year-old. I was recently listening to a podcast by uh, Dr. Tom Rayner, and he was talking about culture. And there's some, there's some misconceptions about culture, um, but culture is really just people. Culture is people and how people respond to the world. So how we respond to the world is culture. Culture is not some abstract thing. It's just how people respond to the world around them. And there's really no disputing the fact that our culture, how we respond to the world around us, is, has been influenced or has been invaded by fear in many different ways. Fear has just consumed our cultural response. So NPR had a podcast a few years back called World With No Fear. World With No Fear that I, listened, that I was listening to. And, and it talked about this guy named um, Roger Hart who did a study back in 1975. And I found it fascinating. He went to this little town in Vermont, this little rural town in Vermont, and, and he wanted to do the study on kids to see um, how safe they felt when they played. And so he went, 1975, so I wasn't born yet, just so you know. I was not alive, so it's before my time. Um, but he went to this little small town and he followed 86 children between the ages of 3 and 12 all day long. And he documented everywhere they went um, by themselves, well, with him by themselves, meaning with, without parents, and just documented where they went. And then he, he took all the information and he plotted it on a map and then he measured the distance from their homes <clears throat> and how far they were allowed to travel without their parents and then averaged it by age and he had this whole study about how far kids could go by age. And he discovered that kids had remarkable freedom. Remarkable freedom. A four or five year old could travel through their entire neighborhood. I have a five year old, he gets lost in the backyard, okay? A four and a five year old could travel alone through the entire neighborhood, 1975. A 10 year old had a run of the entire town with a bicycle, gone. The biggest thing that Hart reported was that the parents weren't worried at all. When he talked to the parents, like, that's fine, whatever. Parents, they, they were fine with it. <clears throat> so years later, 2014, Roger Hart went back to the same town, little town Vermont, same town, another generation of kids, and did the same study, exact same study, same process, very different results. And this is what he said, and I quote, they just didn't have very far to take me. 
They just walked around their property. There's no free range outdoors. Even when the kids are older, parents are now saying, I need to know where they are at all times. Now, here was the interesting fact about the study. Statistics showed in that small town, nothing had changed. Demographics had not changed. The crime rate had not changed. Nothing had changed. The same businesses, nothing had changed in that town in 40 years, except for the generation, generational change. So he said, why the change? And in Hart's interview, he said, the one reason for the change, fear. Fear. He said, fear of the world outside narrows the circle of our lives. That was the conclusion of his study. Fear of the world outside narrows the circle of our lives. You see, fear, fear is the opposing force to our faith. Fear is the opposing force to faith. And when fear is present, our faith, our faith flounders. Our faith sinks, it wanes. Fear, it spreads like a wildfire and it consumes, it consumes everything if it's left unchecked. It, it consumes and it eats away all of the faith that we have. So to understand faith, we often go to Hebrews 11.1, 1, which says faith shows the reality of what we hope for. What we hope for, it is the evidence of things we cannot see. That's, that's what we define faith as in the Bible. You see, fear comes from when our vision shifts from God. We're going to focus on God and focus more on the world. You see, the reality is, is, is fear. Fear is truly, truly, it's a lack of trust. That, that deep root of fear really boils down to a lack of trust. See, I love what the psalmist says in, in Psalm 56. He says, but when I am afraid... I will put my trust in you. I will praise God for what he has promised. I trust in God, so why should I be afraid? What can mortals do to me? You see, the psalmist gets it. He says, if I'm trusting in God, there's nothing this world can actually do to me. That's a, if God is for me, who could be against me? Not that God is going to do everything for me, but if my trust is here, this isn't going to really bother me so much. Because that trust in God, that faith in God, is a barrier against that fear. But if that fear starts invading, it consumes everything else. So if we keep our faith central, if you find someone who has a strong faith, you find someone who has God central in their life. But if you see someone who is consumed by fear, or fear is dominating their life, it usually means that the world is central in their life. And that's where many of us get stuck today. We get stuck in that place of fear because we get bombarded by it from so many directions. It's not that the world has changed, kind of like that city in Vermont. It's not that things have changed so much. It's just that information is so much easier to access. You know, things have been going wrong in this world since the beginning. It's just now we get updates constantly. Get them streamed to our phones and our computers. You know, you can come up on your TV on the bottom bar when you're watching a show, picture in picture. That instant data access is a blessing, but it can also be a curse. So we get stuck in this mindset of fear. And that's really where we find Joseph's 
family today too. In that same kind of situation. See, Joseph's family is, is, is back home and his brothers, minus Simeon, who's still in prison. If you remember last week, he had to stay behind. And his father, Jacob, they're stuck in fear. They're stuck in fear. And so in Genesis 43, the grain has run out again. If you remember last week, um, the brothers, ten, went to Egypt, got grain from Jacob, sorry, Joseph, and then went home, but they had to leave Simeon behind. They get home, they have grain, they had the gold that they had brought, and they ate it all. And now they're hungry again. It's time to go back to Egypt. They need more food. So the brothers go to Jacob and they warn him. They say, we got to go back and get food, but, but we can't go without Benjamin, the youngest brother. We got to take Benjamin with us because this, this second in command, this manager of all the grain in, in Egypt, he said, if you don't bring Benjamin back, you're not going to get your brother back and you're not going to see me again. So bring Benjamin. And... Jacob's not happy about that. He wails, oh, what a world. Why are you so cruel to me, Jacob moans. Why did you tell him I had another, you had another brother? I didn't make that up, that's Genesis 43.6. He's very dramatic about his sons. You've got to remember, he lost his favorite son. I can't imagine what it would be like to lose a child like that. He's very protective over his children. And they debate. Reuben gives him all these ideas like, I'll give you my sons. And he's like, I don't want your sons. I wanted my son. My son's gone. Well, you can have my sons. I don't want your sons. And they, they argue and debate, and they come up with a plan. It's all based on fear. And they're like, okay, take bribes. I mean, gifts. Take the best we have. Take almonds and pistachios and resin and gum and honey and balm. Take the best things. And money, lots of money. Take money. That always works. And so they head for Egypt. And we pick up the story in Genesis 53, verse 15. So the men packed Jacob's gifts and doubled the money and headed off with Benjamin. They finally arrived in Egypt and presented themselves to Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the manager of his household, These men will eat with me this noon. Take them inside the palace so then go slaughter an animal and prepare a big feast. So the man did as Joseph told him and took them to Joseph's palace. And so we see the story shift. You see, the brothers are stuck in this guilt, fear response. And Joseph is the other side of that. He's filled with excitement. My brothers are here. They came back. And when Joseph sees Benjamin is with him, he's filled with even more excitement. But the brothers are filled with fear. And remember, when fear is present, faith flounders, and the fear spreads like an all-consuming fire in our lives. The brothers were terrified when they saw that they were being taken into Joseph's house. It's because of the money someone put in our sacks. Last time we were here, they said, he plans to pretend that we stole it. Then he will seize us, make us slaves, and take our donkey. Donkeys. The brothers 
They approached the manager in Joseph's household and spoke to him at the entrance of the palace. Sir, they said, we came to Egypt once before to buy food, but as we were returning home, we stopped for the night and opened our sacks, and then we discovered that each man's money, the exact amount paid, was on top of the sack. Here it is. We have brought it back with us. And we have extra money, additional money to buy more food. We have no idea who put it in our sacks. William Shakespeare once said, and he wrote it in King Henry VI, suspicion always haunts the guilty mind. Suspicion always haunts the guilty mind. You see, unresolved guilt intensifies fear. Unresolved guilt intensifies fear. They are anxious, they are fearful, they are suspicious, they are paranoid. And they're consumed by fear, and they fear for the worst. Now, now I know, my mama always said, you plan for the best, and or no, you, you hope for the best, and you prepare for the worst. Your mama was like my mama. You, you, you hope for the best and you prepare for the worst. But they're going over, they go over the top, right? They're, they're instigating. They're, they're, their guilt is causing them to do strange things. And our guilt causes us to do strange things too. We start to ask ourselves, you know, could, could I have done more? Maybe I should have done things differently. Maybe I could have done, done it this way. What if, or what if, And guilt didn't number on the brothers, and they confessed, and they're just, they're pouring it out on Joseph's manager. And no clue, we have no clue where the money came from. It was, it was just in the bag, it was in the bag, and we brought it back. We brought more back, double the money, here's the money. Why, we, we would like more food, please, we're hungry, that's why we're here. And I love the response. And this is the heart of this whole passage today. And so if you've been asleep, please wake up, listen to this one verse, then go back to sleep. This is it for the day. This is the one thing I need you to hear from this text today. Because this is it for me. As a pastor, as, as a person of faith, as a husband, as a father, this verse is it. Relax. Don't be afraid, the household manager told them. Your God. The God of your father must have put this treasure into your sacks. I know I received your payment. Then he released Simeon and brought him out to them. I love this. He says, relax. Don't be afraid. The Hebrew word that's used here is shalom. Now, we often say shalom and we go, that's the, that's the Hebrew word for peace. Not peace, man. But that's not what shalom means. Shalom is so much more than just peace or, you know, not war. Shalom in a deeper sense means contentment, means I have all that I need. Shalom means inner peace. God has provided what I need to be satisfied in my life. That is shalom. The manager, not a Hebrew, an Egyptian who did not believe in their God, it's debatable at this point whether the brothers actually believed in their own God, is saying, listen, relax. Your God provided for you. 
I can see it. How come you can't? I don't even believe in your God, and I can see your God working. No one stole anything. I know you didn't steal the money. I know what happened. Your God provided for you. Your God took care of you. Do you see how profound of a statement that is? Shalom. Relax. Don't be afraid. The brothers failed to connect the blessing that they had received in God's grace and in God's abundance. Their guilt kept them from seeing the grace in their life, just like our guilt often keeps us from seeing God's grace in our lives. Their guilt kept them from seeing God's grace in the grain that was provided, in the money that was returned, and their brother Simeon, who was returned, not only healthy, but not beaten and abused, well taken care of. The manager then led the men into Joseph's palace, and he gave them water to wash their feet and provided food for their donkeys, and they were told that they would eat there. So he prepared their gifts for Joseph's arrival at noon. And when Joseph came home, they gave him the gifts that they brought him and bowed low to the ground before him. After greeting him, he asked, How is your father? The old man you spoke about, is he still alive? Yes, they replied, Our father, your servant, is alive and well. And they bowed low again. And then Joseph, look at his brother Benjamin, the son of his own mother. Is this your youngest brother? The one you told me about, Joseph asked. May God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried from the room because he was overcome with emotion for his brother. He went into his private room and he broke down and he wept, wept. The confused brothers are now standing before Jacob. Excuse me. They're standing before Jacob, Joseph. They're standing before Joseph. And they're trying to buy him off with the money. And Joseph's like, psh, 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 psh. Tell me about your father. Is dad still alive? He doesn't say it that way because they don't know. He's Joseph. Is your father still alive? He doesn't care. He does not angry with them. And then he looks at Benjamin, his own blood brother, his brother. And he gives him a blessing. He says, may God be gracious to you, my son. Which is pretty cool because we see that blessing throughout the Old Testament. This is the first time we see that blessing, but it recurs in Numbers. May the Lord be gracious to you. May his face shine upon you and bring you peace. In Numbers 6. And again, later on in the Old Testament. And Joseph is, is no longer able to control his emotions. Sometimes that happens. It happens to me. Maybe it doesn't happen to you and you can control your emotions better, but it happens to me. Sometimes we get overwhelmed by the reality of life, the situation, and we just have to let it all out. And that's what happens to Joseph. But be sure of this. God can handle it. God can handle 
our outbreaks. Sometimes we just need to let it out. Sometimes we, we've reached our boiling point and we just need to release that steam valve. God can handle it. When I was in seminary, I was living in southwest Kansas and I was attending seminary in Oklahoma City. I was serving a church in southwest Kansas and I got a call in the middle of the night, or in, it was not middle of the night, it was dinner time, about an accident that happened in town. The senior pastor wasn't available, um, couldn't get a hold of him. Um, and our associate pastor's son had been in an accident. Caleb, he was eight years old. I didn't know what kind of accident an eight-year-old could be in. Um, and I felt like I really had to get there. And one of those moments where you just have to go somewhere. I call it a Holy Spirit moment, but um, I needed to go there. Um, and I left Aaron at the house with Jacob. He was three at the time. Um, I knew where the accident was. Left a message with the senior pastor, said I was heading over to the site. Um, got there. Went up. I saw the semi. And what was left of the bicycle. The EMS uh, folks said he had he died instantly, and uh, Conchita was taken to the emergency room, and Pastor Juan was taken. Oh, matter there, and so I went over to the hospital, and I sat with Pastor Juan and Conchita, and the rest of the family as they came in. until the senior pastor, Pastor Dave, got there. And then I went home. And I parked the car in the driveway. And I, I sat there behind the steering wheel. And I didn't want to go inside. I didn't want to go out. I didn't want to... I didn't want to talk to my wife. I didn't want to talk to my three-year-old. I didn't want to deal with family. I was angry. I was frustrated. I was fearful. Every emotion I could experience. And I needed to blow off some steam. And so I had my five, ten-minute spat with God, yelling at the steering wheel yelling at the windshield. I think we all do that sometimes. And, and that we, we just, we got to let it out sometimes. We have to. God can handle our outbursts. I needed to do that. Not in front of my family. Not in front of my kid. And I gave it to God. I released the steam valve, washed up. Because when we give our burdens to God, those deep pains, those, those hardest challenges, the, the greatest wounds, 
You know, God has an act of grace that's waiting for us. Now we can we can hold on to it. We can hold on to it like Jacob had done. Jacob had held on to that pain for so long that that bitterness had lasted for 20 years and he couldn't let Benjamin go to Egypt in this, at this point in the story either. Or we can give it to God. And when we give it to God, God has an act of grace waiting for us. And in Joseph's story, Joseph's grace opened his brother's hearts. Joseph gives grace to his brothers that opens their hearts. He gives a kindness that they don't deserve, provisions that they could never repay, grace that washed away their fear. Grace, grace, God's grace. And this meal, this banquet, it was a banquet of grace. And God does the same thing in our lives through Christ. You see, in this, this, this story of, of Joseph, this and this part of the story parallels our story with Christ. It really does. Because these guilty brothers and the way that they respond to Joseph is the same way we respond to God. You see, we, like the brothers, often come to God feeling guilty, feeling distant, feeling broken. And, and like Joseph, God deals out grace instead of vengeance. Instead of blaming us for our past, Jesus forgives us for those past sins on the cross. Instead of making us feel guilty, Jesus offers us freedom. And instead of receiving punishment, the punishment that we deserve for our actions, we're seated at God's holy table and invited to feast with him. Just as Joseph's brothers were invited to seat, to sit at the table and feast. Like Joseph's brothers, we, we, we get before God and we try to bribe him with these things. Look what I did. I did this great thing. Here's the money. Here's the money I brought and the money from last time. Here's the great works of service I did. I did this great deed. I did this ministry. I did this thing. I served in the community. I'm on the hospitality team. I did this thing. Look what I did, God. That buys me something, right? But it makes no difference because... We try to silence our, our guilt and buy something that we can't buy because all that God wants to do is overwhelm us with his grace. That's all that God wants to do. God doesn't want us to buy anything. He wants to give us grace. Isaiah 30, 18 says, So the Lord must wait for you to come. The Lord must wait for you to come to him so he can show you his love and compassion. For the Lord is faithful. Blessed are those who wait for his help. You see, God waits for us. That's the other part of this. That grace is something that we have to seek. God waits to give it. And there's nothing that he can't handle. And so I ask you today, what is it that you've been holding on to? What guilt, what fear, what thing has stolen your faith, consumed your faith, so that fear has invaded your life? What past have you held on to for so long? You've lost sight of 
what God has for you, what grace and abundance God has for you now. God is waiting for each of us. And it takes us reaching out to him. And he can handle anything and everything that we give to him, no matter how deep the pain. Because there's nothing he can't handle. Let's pray about it. Today we reaffirm our faith in you. And we put our trust in your saving grace. In your son, Jesus Christ, who came to save. God, we cast aside our guilt, our fear, and all that holds us back. And lay it at your feet, God. We move into this day and this week with renewed faith. And your abundant grace, Lord. It's in the name of Jesus, your Son, our Savior, that we pray.